Welcome to Zazon. My name is Jorge. And I'm joined by my wonderful co-host for today, John Valdivia. Thank you for joining us. Today I have our guest of honor, Mark Lopez, who is the director of Hispanic Research at Pew Research Center. Welcome. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. And I think I want to start things off by, you know, you introducing yourself, what you do at your role, and what really drove you to, to want to do Hispanic research. So uh, I am the director of the Hispanic Research Program at the Pew Research Center. It's actually part of a bigger program looking at race and ethnicity and immigration, uh, both in the US and around the world. Um, but my work has largely focused on public opinion of Latinos. So asking Latinos lots of questions about their views on politics, events, but also identity and where they see the community going or how they feel about their place in the country. Um, I came to this after many years of being a professor, I was a professor for 13 years. My training is in economics, but all of my interest in studying Latinos and studying Hispanics comes from uh, uh, interacting with my dad, who used to be uh, uh, very heavily involved in Chicano politics locally in Southern California. And uh, we oftentimes talked about uh, uh, what's the role of Hispanics and of Chicanos in the nation. Uh, and this is way back in the 70s and 80s. And that's been an interest of mine ever since. What I really want to discuss today is like, what is the role of Hispanics in America, especially today, post 2020, where we saw COVID-19, you know, disproportionately affect the Hispanic community? What's next post 2020? And, you know, if you could share any insights on the Hispanic population itself and where we see ourselves next year. Uh, all great questions. And I do think we should probably start with some uh, some some uh, facts, some demographic facts and trends. So first, how many Latinos are there in the United States? How many people self-identify as being part of this population? It's about 61 million. The 2020 census is probably going to count 62 million, uh, perhaps more, uh, people of Hispanic or Latino background living in the country today. That makes up uh, more than 18% of the nation's population. And an analysis of ours looking at uh, population growth in the United States since 2010 shows that, for example, about half of the nation's population growth has come from population growth of Hispanics alone. And to give you some sense of how big that growth has been, the number of Latinos living in the US has grown by over 10 million people since 2010. So that's just some, I think, important uh, uh, facts to keep in mind. But coming into the Trump administration in 2017, we noticed that Latinos were having some, uh, some shifts in their views about the future for their kids and also uh, about how they see themselves in the country. So. Back in 2018, we asked Latinos whether or not they feel uh, they have concerns about their place in America today or whether or not they feel comfortable in their place in America after Trump's election. Latinos were generally split. About half said they had serious concerns about their place, and the other half said that things were that they felt comfortable in America today. But those viewpoints have gotten worse. By 2019, we saw more than half of Latinos saying that they had serious concerns about their place in the country. And uh, this is particularly true for immigrants, particularly those who may be in the country without authorization. More than 70% of them, for example, say they have serious concerns about their place in the country. One other notable thing from the same survey was that we found that among Latino adults who have children, the share who said that they expect their children to be better off in the future than they themselves are, at least financially, um, stood at about 50%. But in the past, we had picked up a a share that said they expected their kids to be better off financially than they themselves are of around 75, 80%. So there'd been a decline in the share of Hispanic parents who were uh, sure that their kids or felt that their kids were gonna be better off financially than they themselves are in the future. 
That's notable because Latinos are one of the most optimistic groups of Americans, despite all the challenges that, they, that have faced the population. And they're optimistic, particularly about the future for their own children. So as we enter 2020, uh, population growth, it's largely coming from, our, uh, from this population, from Latinos. But at the same time, the Latino population comes out of the Trump administration years, perhaps feeling somewhat less secure about their place in the country and concerned about their children's financial future. Remains to be seen whether or not this will change, but this is something that at least going into the election was a characteristic of the population. Um, yeah, I think you really bring up great points. I think, you know, some new things for me and especially going now into the 2020 elections, we did see an increase in Hispanic voters. And I just want to touch upon that a bit. And, you know, now with everything that you just said, now that we're trying to find our place in, in 2020 and now looking for the future, especially with financial security at top of mind, you know, immigration policies top of mind, you know, how important was that for the Hispanic voter in this election? So our surveys of Hispanic voters over the years have shown a pretty consistent pattern of issues that are important to, the, to, to Hispanic registered voters. So for example, it's oftentimes the economy, uh, it's oftentimes education, healthcare, sometimes not necessarily immigration. But what's interesting about this election season is when we did a survey back in October, uh, looking at the issues that were most important to the vote of Latinos this year for president, the top issue was the economy. And that's no surprise, given that the Latino unemployment rate spiked to over 18% in April at the height of the shutdown that followed the COVID-19 uh, pandemic wave. And you also see that Latinos, while they've recovered some, they still have a relatively high unemployment rate of about 10%, um, at least through August of this year. Um, the second most uh, cited issue as importance to the vote was the, co the COVID-19 uh, uh, pandemic and how the uh, nation has responded to it. Again, here, it's no surprise. We found that 22% of Latino adults tell us that either they're pretty sure they had COVID-19 or they tested positive in a COVID-19 test. By comparison, just 14% of US adults say the same. So Latinos are more likely to have had some contact with or direct experience with COVID-19. That also is something that impacted their economic circumstances. 61% of Latino adults tell us that someone in their household has either lost their job or has taken a pay cut because of COVID-19. That's by far the highest of any group of Americans. And so again, Latinos were impacted uh, greatly by COVID-19. What was number three on the list? Healthcare, perhaps no surprise again, given COVID-19. And what's number four? Uh, racial and ethnic inequality. And if you notice, I haven't said immigration on any of these issues. Um, immigration was rising to the top prior to the COVID-19 outbreaks or a December survey showed that it was just on par with the economy as a top issue for Latino voters. But with the COVID-19 outbreak, its impact on Latinos, on their economic well-being, on their health, um, that has all meant that those are now the top issues facing the country, in addition to racial and ethnic inequality. Oh, definitely. All, all interesting insights. I think I want to just backstep a bit and talk about the unemployment rates, that the, the data that you shared. Um, is that specifically pertaining to uh, documented Latino and Hispanic populations or does the, does the survey also account for people that may not be currently legal in the U.S.? So it does uh, account for the resident population of the United States. It's a survey from the U.S. government. And so it does include people who are in the country with authorization. So people who are immigrants but are U.S. citizens or maybe have a green card or the equivalent. But it also does include, it's likely 
that uh, undocumented or unauthorized immigrants are also in that. Again, the federal government doesn't ask people, are you in the country illegally or not? So they are in these surveys, but we have no way of knowing precisely how many there are in these surveys. But yes, it is a, it is a sample of the resident population. Uh, and I think that that's an important point to note. By the way, it was the US born who tended to have a higher unemployment rate at the spike than the foreign born, which I think is also interesting. Very interesting. Awesome. And I think, you know, kind of leading into our next topic with top of the list, you know, economy and, you know, financial security post a COVID climate. And like you said, you know, I think that's top of mind for all Hispanic families, many who struggle to make ends meet. And especially now going into the holidays and going into 2021, you know, where do we actually stand? And the Latino buying power prior to COVID and post COVID. Can you just paint that image out for me? So Latinos uh, and their economic uh, um, um, purchasing power, if you wanted to, to describe it that way, has been growing over the years, mostly because the Hispanic population has become bigger. As I'd noted earlier, the population has, has accounted for a lot of U.S. population growth. So when you take a look at the, at the U.S. overall, you'll find that as the U.S. Hispanic population has grown from 35 million in 2000 to uh, more than 60 million today, you'll find that the size or the foot economic footprint of Latinos has also grown. So the population is growing, that means you have more economic uh, uh, impact. And in fact, estimates of the size of the economic power, the economic purchasing power of the Latino population currently stand at about $2.6 trillion. That's more than 10% of the US economy. And if it were an economy in the world on its own, uh, researchers at UCLA say that that would be an economy larger than, say, the economy of a country like India, which has over a billion people. But while Latinos continue to see their economic purchasing power numbers grow, what is also striking is that uh, Latino economic, uh, and at the individual level, Latino income has actually been somewhat flat. And in fact, since the Great Recession, it's taken over 10 years for U.S.-born Latinos to recover their income levels to the period to the place where they were prior to the Great Recession period. That is, to me, also a very striking story. So on the one hand, Latino purchasing power is growing, but household and personal income of Latinos continues to lag other groups, even though in recent years, household incomes have started to grow again for Latinos. Um, that's also, I think, a representation a little bit of the educational attainment levels of the population. We've seen a record number of young Latinos going to college, uh, over 3 million now, for example, in any given year. But what's also happening here is that a greater share are finishing college, getting a bachelor's degree, particularly Hispanic women, and that's starting to see some payoff in the labor market. But only about, uh, about 18% of Latinos ages 25 to 29, for example, actually have a college degree, have a bachelor's degree. By comparison among Asian Americans, that number is over 50%. So there's a real lag here between Latinos and others in terms of educational attainment. So despite growing economic purchasing power, Latinos generally still lag behind other groups when it comes to individual income, so personal income or household income, or even educational attainment. All great insights. And I think that really ties back into the second piece, you know, when you talk about healthcare and health insurance, especially now post COVID, I think, can you, can you kind of paint that image for me of mm -hmm. how the Latino stands in healthcare access? And also, you know, as we look for the, the vaccination to you know, be released to the public, how easy will that be to be obtained for, you know, a regular Latino in America? And will there be struggling getting this out to the whole population? Mm. So those are all good questions. So first, even going into the pandemic, 
um, many Latinos, particularly undocumented Latino immigrants, did not have health insurance. And Latinos are more likely than other groups of Americans to not have any kind of insurance at all. Um, but the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has resulted in job loss for many Hispanics who have subsequently then lost their health insurance. And as I was mentioning earlier, 22% uh, of Latino adults tell us that they're pretty sure they either had COVID-19 or they took a COVID-19 test and they tested positive for it, higher share than any other group of, of Americans. Um, so the, the health impact of COVID-19 has been pretty wide and pretty deep on the, Latino, uh, on the Latino population. Interestingly, we also find though that, um, that a growing share of Latinos are wearing face masks. So a growing number wear face masks uh, today, say they wear face masks today when they go out in public than just a few months ago. But at the same time, Latinos are somewhat less likely than other Americans to say they're gonna take, a vac take the vaccine when the vaccine becomes available. And interestingly, both black Americans and Hispanic Americans are less likely to, to say they're gonna take the vaccine than white Americans or Asian Americans. So there is this, this difference in terms of trust in taking the vaccine among Hispanics. So that alone suggests that perhaps when the vaccine becomes available, the, um, the rate at which Latinos get it may be different than other groups, even, even despite any challenges of distributing any vaccine across the US public once it becomes available. Wow, you know, I think those are shocking, you know, numbers right there. I think while still on uh, the topic of COVID, you know, in your research, where do we see it, you know, transitioning into 2021, especially now where in New York City, particularly, you know, we just go, uh, closed schools for the second time. So, you know, now a lot of parents have that on top of mind where they have to take care of their kids while also trying to maintain if they're still, if they still have their job or handle uh, childcare as well, where a lot of places are also starting to close down. Businesses are now under new restrictions in certain locations. And, you know, now we see a second wave potentially coming. So, you know, where, where is that playing into as we look towards the future of the Hispanic? Yeah, it's a good question about the, what's the long run impact, I'm sorry, the short run impact of COVID-19 and ultimately the long run impact on Latinos. And I think generally the US public, um, but a couple of things to note. Uh, parents uh, generally in the US have, uh, have a lower labor force participation rate today than they did a year ago at this time. Um, that's partly because of COVID-19. There's no daycare, there's no school. So they have to stay home and take care of their children. And this has particularly had an impact on women in the United States. They're, they haven't really recovered to where they used to be prior to the COVID-19 outbreak in terms of labor force participation rates because um, they have to take care of children at home and their offices are closed or, they, or their business is closed or schools are closed or there's no daycare. The interesting thing about Latinos is that Latinos are more likely to have younger children. They are more likely to have families. And so this impact on Latinos may perhaps be greater, though it does remain to be seen because unlike some other groups of Americans, Latinos are oftentimes able to rely on family to help with childcare in a way that isn't the case for some others. And so the impact, it remains to be seen what it will be, but Latinos are certainly likely to see um, some sort of a long run effect, perhaps on children and educational attainment, perhaps on the ways in which families are able to return to work so it could have some economic impacts on Latinos too, but all that I think remains to be seen. Will there be another package of help from the federal government or state governments to help people impacted by COVID-19? And will there also perhaps be a sharp economic rebound once a, a vaccine is introduced and how quickly will that happen? 
all of those things could change and shape the story in many different ways. But no doubt that Latinos are impacted in many ways, economically, health-wise, in terms of the way they live their lives with their families, and in terms of childcare. Yeah, I always, my, I guess, greatest fear that, that will come out of this from an education perspective is the digital divide that we, that COVID kind of uh, highlighted even more so now and the generational disparity that will be now within the education. Because once a, a student falls behind, it will be very tough for them, depending on what age and what grade they're in to, to catch up. So how will this affect the Latino community for generations to come based on the fact that now we have students that don't have laptops or don't have access to Wi-Fi um, and now they're in a virtual setting? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's exactly one of the challenges that Latino families are facing is not only that, they're, that uh, there's some daycare challenges in the short run, but in the long run, the shift to studying from home and then the resources that those families may have could very well have an impact on uh, the long run economic and educational achievement of uh, young Latinos. I think it still does remain to be seen, but uh, it is, it, this is a, a broader problem, I think, and not just about uh, young children uh, or people who go to school, but it's also a problem for how companies will uh, perhaps return to work. One of the things that's come to uh, my mind about all of this is that as we work from home, all those benefits that young people get from being in the office, for example, or being at work and engaging with others and mentors and so forth, that's somewhat minimized. And then on top of that, working from home for many folks, we all have different setups at home. Some of us don't have a desk to work from or even good Wi-Fi to work from at home. So the impact on, on communities that are not as connected or don't have broadband connections or don't have the technology or um, at one point, some marketers might've characterized Latinos as, ahead of the curve because they've adopted all this mobile technology and are using their phone more than a desktop or don't even own a desktop. Actually, that may actually be a, perhaps more of a negative now than a positive because how do you do your homework or, your, or fill out a job application or deal with anything having to do with, with uh, your life on a mobile device? Can work, but I gotta tell you, I, I have a hard time doing everything on the phone and I'm kind of a techie kind of guy. Oh, definitely. I, I agree with that. You know, I've never filled out a job application on my phone, but it's definitely difficulty, especially I have wider fingers. So, so that definitely makes it a lot tougher, but yeah, I think still on the education piece, I really, you know, you brought up some very interesting points and now, you know, kind of going from generational aspect, you know, people now that are it in college or just about to graduate, you know, post a pandemic uh, climate, you know, where do they stand? I'm not sure if you have any insight on like, the college level students who, you know, are looking to get into a job market that's kind of been flipped upside down post COVID where a lot of jobs were laying off workers, you know, a lot of different fields, STEM, STEM fields that, you know, were laying off and furloughing employees when the first wave of the pandemic started. And now, now that we're looking maybe a second wave of the pandemic, you know, how does that affect them in a sense, you know, where they stand, what, what opinions they have on the stability of the job market, you know, leaving college? Well, certainly starting with the pen at the beginning of the pandemic, it was clear that um, the groups of American workers who could work from home, who could telework, um, were particular groups of workers, people who work in offices, people who have college educations and so forth. And Latinos were among one of the groups that were less likely to be in a position or in a job that would allow them to telework from home. So just going into the, into the pandemic, 
Latinos were perhaps in a group of jobs that just didn't have those opportunities um, available. But I think also the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, while it certainly created a lot of havoc in the job market for many people who've lost their jobs or had to take a pay cut, it's also created new jobs and new opportunities. And I don't know how all of this pluses and minuses have worked out. It remains to be seen. We need data on this and the federal government is, is of course been collecting data, but we need more uh, data on this and it'll take some time to get that. We might have to wait a year or two to really kind of understand what impact uh, COVID-19 had on the job market. But just from my own personal family's experience, it is striking to me that uh, some of my uh, nieces and nephews have uh, been able to find new job opportunities and better job opportunities in COVID-19 because um, they're able to find jobs that are where there's a lot of demand for workers like warehousing jobs and so forth. Now, uh, that's not for everybody, but it is a, a story that's somewhat the flip of what we usually talk about with COVID-19. There are some uh, positives involved with this as the economy churns, changes, and people look for new jobs. It's very interesting. I think, like you said, it remains to be seen. And I guess painting that picture out in the next five years, you know, you know, where do we see Hispanics really making up a larger part of the workforce? And where do we see a larger allocation of Hispanics towards in, in different industries? And I guess how how will that shape post-COVID as well? Mm. I think, again, here, that is uh, it remains to be seen. And as some people might say, remains to be seen is one of my favorite phrases because <laughs> we, <just, laughs> we just don't know. But it is also, I think, uh, important to note that we were already seeing a number of trends for Latinos. Um, that is a growing number uh, uh, and a growing share finishing college. So that's, I think, an important first point to keep in mind. That's still going to be in place even five years from now, um, uh, just because there's so much momentum uh, uh, behind it. Um, what I do think, though, will be um, interesting to see how it plays out is uh, what happens to Latinos in particular sectors? Uh, what happens as sectors come back or don't come back? Many Latinos, for example, work in hospitality. They work in hotels, they work in restaurants. And the hotel and restaurant industry is going through a lot of churn. Uh, companies are going out of business. Restaurants are losing, uh, have lost so much business that they can't stay open anymore. What does that mean for Latinos overall? I think, it, again, it still remains to be seen, but the concentration of Latinos in certain industries means that they're probably more at risk for longer term uh, challenges in terms of recovering where they were prior to COVID-19. But again, it depends on how quickly the economy recovers and it depends on, on how quickly Latinos are able to find new opportunities in the economy as things uh, reopen up. But we'll see. Uh, I think it's not gonna be an easy road forward, but there are also some opportunities uh, ahead for not only Latinos, but the entire US uh, workforce. Now we could kind of move on to the Hispanic identity, you know, looking forward to the next five years, you know, especially with the shift in people identifying as Hispanic, you know, with things like the census and, you know, kind of if you could just walk us through that and, you know, where we see ourselves in the next five to 10 years and maybe longer than that. Uh, all really good questions. So what is happening with Latino identity? Well, first, I think one important trend to note that was already well underway before COVID-19 was the declining uh, number of new immigrant arrivals from Latin America. People still do come to the U.S. as immigrants from Latin America, but the number has been in decline for over 10 years now. Um, and it's uh, largely been driven by a decline in Mexican immigrants coming to the United States, by the way. But at the same time, that means that the share foreign born among the nation's Hispanic population is in decline. And it's true not only for Mexicans and for the entire population, 
but even among some of the uh, groups that are largely foreign-born, like Venezuelans, the share of foreign-born is in decline because it is U.S. births to Hispanic parents that are the big drivers now of Hispanic population growth. The reason why I bring this up is because that means that now we're seeing the U.S. born become a bigger part of the Hispanic story and the foreign born less so. The foreign born are actually already less than half of the adult population of Hispanics. They're less than a third of all Hispanics, but growth into the future, the growth of the Latino labor force, uh, new Latino homeowners, a lot of that is gonna be coming from U.S. born Latinos who have come of age, gone to school here, got a, perhaps even got a college degree here and enter adult life and uh, buy a home. So when we talk about the future trends and identity for this population, I think the U.S. born trend is an important one to, to keep in mind. Another one is what are Latinos going to call themselves in the future? As you know, there's oftentimes this ongoing debate. Are you Hispanic or are you Latino? It's been something people have been talking about for over 20, 20 plus years. And now there's a new, um, uh, new pan-ethnic term that's emerged Latinx to perhaps supplant uh, Latino and Latina or even Hispanic as the term to describe the population. Frankly, though, the term is not well known. Three quarters of Latino adults tell us that they have not heard of Latinx. And only 3% of all people of this heritage use Latinx to describe their own identity. So it's interesting that the population the term is meant to describe is largely unaware of it and largely doesn't use it. So it, of course, things could change. The term Latinx could become much more prevalent in the future. I think particularly because the U.S as a country uh, overall, particularly among young people, is becoming more aware and sensitive to issues of gender identity and uh, being sensitive to the ways in which people want to self-identify themselves. So if you think about the movement to, to let somebody know what your preferred pronouns are, for example, that's something that many younger Americans generally uh, say that they do and they really support. You don't quite see it among older Americans, but it's part of a broader international movement to reshape the way that we think about gender identity. Latinx is part of that too, but perhaps some other term will supplant Latinx. And I think there's already a candidate on the horizon, which is uh, Latin E, so Latin with the letter E, so Latine, which is, uh, um, if you think about it, that's a interesting term that works in Spanish. So it's a word that works in Spanish. Latinx doesn't quite work in Spanish as well, um, but it is also something that's emerged in Latin America. And so maybe that'll become an alternative to Latinx as we move, as we move forward. But I still think the big identity uh, markers that shape this population are really gonna be the origin countries. Where do people's families come from? What countries do they come from? That's what we've seen as steadily and steadily so as the most common way that people in this group identify themselves. And it's probably gonna continue to be the case uh, moving forward. I, I, it's unlikely that that's gonna change. Yeah, I've actually never heard the term Latin eight. Do you, can you do you actually mind defining it? Is it just it's just like Latinx? It's meant to be the same thing. So rather than saying, for example, uh, uh, todos and todas, so putting gender on a word, you say todes, which is gender neutral. But it works in Spanish because you could use all the conjugation. You could you could you could uh, have a singular and plural. It's pronounceable. And if you in if you look at the sort of the way people make sometimes make a comments about and fun of Latinx is, well, you're going to, the people will say, are you going to put an X for every O and A that's gendered and every word's going to have an X so that you would have, rather than todos and todas, it'd be T-O-D-X-S. How do you pronounce that? I mean, X is not a word that's common in Spanish, but E does work. And I have to say that this term 
uh, Latine and uh, using it uh, in Spanish is something that you see in Argentina, something you see in Mexico. It's something that's emerged independently in Latin America. And that's really what I think is interesting is that there are other movements around the world that doesn't have to just be from the US. That's awesome. No, I think that definitely that'll probably influence, you know, I like the term. I, I think, you know, it has potential. It has um, potential, yeah. It has potential. Definitely different. It has, you know, a good marketing campaign behind it. And, you know, we'll all start using it in 20 years. But that's an interesting <laughs> thing here about Latinx is that um, as we've presented some of the results from our survey on Latinx, um, one of the questions that I've heard from people is, does Latinx need a marketing campaign? Maybe awareness is just not where it might be, but that's why I think things could change in another five, 10 years when it comes to Latino identity. You did ask me, Jorge, about the future, right? even farther into the future. And that's where I think it's less clear about what will happen. Um, the, the Hispanic population in the US, as I said earlier, a number 61 million, but those are people who self-identify as part of the group. So you have to choose to be Latino and mark yourself as such to get counted in the census as a Latino. Um, people who may say that they're even, for example, somebody who is an immigrant from say the Dominican Republic, but doesn't mark uh, Hispanic on the census, they're not gonna get counted as Hispanic even though they were born in the Dominican Republic because that's how they wanna be identified. Some people might say that person should be counted as part of the population, but it's an interesting question. Is it about self-identity or is it about your ancestry? Well, figuring out the ancestry of everybody, particularly those who aren't immigrants is gonna be very hard. And I don't know if you, Jorge, wanna pay for a DNA test for everybody. I'm not even sure that those would work. But one of the challenges here is uh, to take people at their word in a survey as to how they describe themselves. So identity might be very different in the future, partly because intermarriage rates are so high. I don't know if you know this or not, but one quarter of all Latino newlyweds marry somebody who's not Latino. And that's actually one of the highest intermarriage rates of any group of Americans. And when you look at all intermarried couples in the country, uh, about 42% of all intermarried couples are a white spouse with a Hispanic spouse. And that is perhaps not what most people think about when they think about intermarriage. They usually think about white, black, Asian, uh, white. Um, and so it's striking that Latinos are one of the most intermarried groups in the country. What's also striking is, is that that then may impact identity in the future. So imagine that two, three generations from now, uh, there might be a group of people who say they have Hispanic ancestry. They'll say, oh yeah, my great grandmother was from Mexico. Um, so they have the ancestry but they don't self-identify as Hispanic or Latino or whatever the future term might be. Instead, they'll say, but I'm white or I'm black. I'm not, I'm not Hispanic. That means that the identity of the population could change as intermarriage rates continue to remain high, as people's identities and views of themselves change. And I think that that's really where uh, we might see the population go. Already there's about, about 5 million American adults who will say they have an ancestry that's Hispanic, but do not self-identify as Hispanic. And when you talk to them and you ask them, have you ever thought of yourself as Hispanic or Latino? 81% um, in our latest survey on this said, no, they've never even thought of themselves as Hispanic or Latino. So they know they have the ancestry and it's not that they're trying to hide it. It just, it doesn't occur to them to consider themselves such. No, I said it's kind of interesting is specifically about the Latino population and the fact that we're not a race, we're an ethnicity, and therefore mm. as generations uh, pass, uh, we're, we're less tied to where our motherland was um, versus race that continuously, you know, goes down from generation to generation. 
it's very interesting because most people are, are I, that I've talked to think Latinos are race, but it's not. We come in all different races, uh, Latinos in ethnicity. Um, so yeah, it's very interesting to see how how yeah. Latino will be in, in 20, 30, 40 years from now. I will say that uh, two thirds of Latino adults in one of our surveys from a few years ago said that they saw their Hispanic identity as part of their racial identity. So I know that we have some pretty strong definitions as a sociologist or a scientist about, well, a race is this and ethnicity is that, but the public itself doesn't quite think that way. So I think it's interesting that even though, for example, there's oftentimes this debate about, well, who counts as Hispanic and who counts as Latino? And if you follow this debate, it goes something like this. Hispanics are people who trace their roots to the Spanish-speaking countries of Latin America and to Spain. But it doesn't include Brazilians, nor Haitians, or uh, any of those other groups. It's just people from the Spanish-speaking countries and from Spain. Um, Latino, on the other hand, is some, some will say is defined as people who are from Latin America and would include Brazil, uh, but would exclude Spain and Portugal. Now, I, you know, these are really sharp definitions. And in all frankness, most of the public doesn't think about their identity this way. Um, so when we ask people about their identity, we don't try to shift them around and so like to correct them because it's not of our job to correct them. But I also don't think that most people think about their identities in such scientific or in such strict, sharp ways. Some do, but not everybody uh, does. And that's why the whole Latinx identity question is so interesting. Who actually uses and knows about Latinx tends to be college-educated, U.S.-born, English-speaking young people. That says a lot to me about sort of how they became aware of the term because it did emerge in colleges and universities first. Um, and so I wonder, too, these definitions, you know, it tends to be people who have studied this in some way or uh, understand the, the big dynamics. But the public itself, I don't think it's sitting there saying to itself, Am I Hispanic or Latino today? Wait a minute, should my Brazilian friend be counted? Some might do that, but most I have found uh, don't think about it quite that deeply. Do you think there'll ever be a, a, I mean, and even like in the census where it doesn't have, like I don't consider myself white and I'm not black. I would love for it to have a, a section that says brown. Do you think that will ever happen? Well, you could choose uh, some other race on the census race question and then write in your race. And, you know, actually, Latinos are more likely to do that than any other group. Um, I did that. That's what I did this last sentence. I put other race. Uh, what I did don't you consider myself white or black. Hey, can I ask what you put into your, in, what you filled in? Do you remember what you filled in? I put brown. <laughs> so I will look to see if you're tabulated as brown. I will see if uh, there's anybody who says that they're brown for their race. And, how, and uh, if there's only one person, I'll know it's you. So... <laughs> But, but, in a, but in all seriousness, um, in 2010, 37% of Latinos said that their race was some other race. But you know what answers people gave? They gave their, the most common answer was Mexican as their race. So people said, I'm some other race, and that race is Mexican. Uh, the second most common answer was Hispanic. And the third most common answer was Latin American. So when you take a look at it, I think that the survey, the, the questions that the census asked about race and Hispanic identity, um, maybe don't work as well as they could. People get, I think, confused about how to answer it. So if you think about how a Mexican might answer these questions, they're saying in the question about Hispanic identity, they're like, oh yeah, I'm Hispanic. And then you're asked, well, what are you? Are you Mexican, Cuban, Salvadoran? And they'll mark Mexican. And then they go to the race question and they say, and ask you, what are your race? Are you white, black, Asian, or some other race? And they mark, I'm some other race. And then the census says, could you write in your race? And they write in Mexican. So they're saying Mexican, Mexican, 
it's probably something that people are like, well, wait a minute, you've just asked me this. Why are you asking again? Now, um, uh, you know, the Census Bureau did a lot of research on this over the course of the last 10 years. And the 2020 census was uh, slated to have a change in the way we ask about race and Hispanicity. Uh, they were gonna combine the two questions. So the question would have read something like, are you white, black, Hispanic, Asian, uh, Native American, uh, Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, or some other race, mark all that apply. Um, that would have been, uh, perhaps produced a different set of responses. But on the other side of it, just to be clear about where this whole dual question setup comes from, um, it was Latino civil rights groups back in the 1960s that were pushing for a separate Hispanic question. And the many Latino civil rights groups, or some, I should say, were uh, actually against the, com the combining of the two questions in the worry that perhaps the number of people who self-identify might be lower because of this multi-part, or I'm sorry, this one question that you could choose more than one thing. People will say, well, what do I choose? I don't know what I should choose. And that it might lead to perhaps a, a lower number of Hispanics counted. Interesting set of challenges and questions, but it also strikes me that when you think about Latino identity, uh, Latinos themselves have shaped a lot of how we think about our own identity and our civil rights groups have done a lot to help shape that too. So it's all fascinating to me in many ways, but there's a little bit of a give and take in all of it. Yeah, especially like in, in California with like the Chicano movement, movement, the Brown Pride, like the Brown Berets, you know, like all that is fascinating and how they kind of try to take back what their identity was. Exactly. Within the population, which happened in New York too with the Young Lords and the Puerto Ricans. That's right. And, you know, as, uh, as, when you think about it, this whole notion of uh, identity, um, it really is something that comes and goes in terms rise and fall. And uh, Latinx is on the rise. Um, perhaps Hispanic is on the decline. Um, but yes, there are some very regional specific terms as well, like Chicano or Tejano. Those, those are some examples. I'm from New York, and back in the day, I remember like people saying, "Like you're Spanish." That, that's how they identify Latinos. Like, oh, we're gonna go eat some Spanish food, not meaning Spanish food from Spain, but like Puerto Rican or Caribbean food, like Dominican food. Like, because in New York, that's like the Spanish bodega isn't really because there's Spanish people from Spain there. It was because it was like you know Dominican or Boricua, Puerto Rican owned that spoke Spanish and. Spanish became like synonymous to Latino in New York for a long period of time. And then little by little, like, no, I'm not from Spain, but it didn't mean that back in the day. It was, Spanish was Latino. And uh, wasn't there also a derogatory form of Hispanic for in, in New York? That When I think about it, it comes out of New York. What was Spick. that again? The Spick. Yeah, the yeah. And you know, as a, as a Californian, I had never heard that until I came to New York. And yeah. I went to New York for a summer. And I'm like, what? You mean like spick and spam? Um, yeah, they would call you a spick, but then like we would make it an acronym and says Spanish people in control. That was like our, our comeback to being spick. But again, using the, the term Spanish as our identifier that I would never use that now, but before in the 80s when you're going to the, and even now, like most of my friends that are not Latino, they're like, oh, we're going to go hit the Spanish spot, meaning the Spanish bodega. And, and I understand that, that they're going to the, the, the La Cubanita or whatever place, you know, around the block. Oh, that is that is so, so interesting. And, you know, it's uh, like I said, when I went to New York in the 80s, that's when I first heard this uh, term. Uh, but also it's so striking to me that um, 
our research on those people we were talking about earlier, people who are uh, uh, have um, Hispanic ancestries, like their Mexican ancestry, but don't identify as part of the group, don't call themselves Hispanic or Latino. You know what they say their heritage is? Spanish. I I'm sure that, 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 the, that it can't all be Spanish because some of it's gotta be Mexican and so forth. But again, I think it's this interesting sort of kind of going to some sort of a base of, um, well, you know, I'm from that group that speaks Spanish, so I'm Spanish, I must be Spanish is I think what a lot of folks will say, but that's the single most common answer given by that group when you ask them what their heritage is. Yeah, I, I know for New York that it, it was more because that's what other people identified as, as Spanish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why it, it became kind of our term in New York. But it, like I said, now in New York is mostly Latino that I've heard. You'll still go to the Spanish bodega, but that doesn't mean Spanish from Spain. It means like still Hispanic or Latino, so. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Still, still relevant in New York, I think, especially with food. Like it took like when I was younger, all like whenever I ate Spanish food, it was rice, beans and chicken, you know, and honestly, growing up, you know, you don't realize because a lot of the cuisine is very similar in, in the Caribbean, Hispanic uh, countries. So like Dominican food and Puerto Rican food, you know, you have a steak or like a beef, rice and beans. And I would just call it Spanish food. And, you know, I think I think Mexican in itself is like another, you know, people call it Mexican food because, you know, tacos and other things like that yeah. but yeah it's actually very interesting hearing that john i grew up in a later generation where i think mexican was mostly i, I did hear the term speak a, a good amount of times too but you uh, you know a couple of years ago the economist ran a uh, article about the growing hispanic population in the u.s and on the cover of the economist i don't know if you remember this they had the u.s flag made up of chili peppers and you know, that's a, that's a suggestion that, you know, a Mexican origin is sort of a Hispanic origin. So, and the reaction on Twitter was really quite strong. In fact, it was a good set of articles, but I think people were so taken by this flag and many people were offended by it. They would say things like, I'm Venezuelan. I don't like spicy food or uh, peppers are not part of my cuisine. And they might be from some other part of Latin America, uh, like Cuba or something. And really that to me was very, very striking. There was a, I think it was NBC News um, many years ago did a survey of Latinos asking them about whether or not uh, 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 they like uh, tacos, um, trying to be light and asking you know the Hispanic public about tacos and how they, what how do they eat their tacos, but not everybody eats tacos, so uh, not everybody eats tortillas, and so again it was a very Mexican centric perspective on the question, but it didn't work in, for many other groups of of, of Latinos. It's one of the reasons why at the Pew Research Center, when we did telephone surveys, we used to try to, though we couldn't always do this, have Spanish speakers who had a Mexican accent to focus on Mexican areas of the country, Spanish speakers with a Puerto Rican accent and a Cuban accent to focus on those parts of the countries because we could identify them relatively well, just to have somebody who spoke the language and could and would be understood by potential survey respondents and wouldn't feel like it's some stranger, uh, a total stranger calling in who doesn't even part, not even part of the group. It's hard to do. Uh, we don't do telephone surveys anymore, but still, it's an example of how uh, there are all these distinctions around the country uh, for the group, uh, and it's striking how you sometimes people make the mistake of assuming they're all all the people in this group are the same. Well, that that's always like the running joke, right? If you're a Latino and you're in New York, you're Puerto Rican. You go to Florida, you're Cuban. If you go to California, you're Mexican, right? So like, even within our own like, I I I lived in in. in I'm from New York, but I lived in California. And yeah, the second I got there, everybody thought I was Mexican. Um, yeah. 
yeah, it was fine and everything. But uh, yeah, like it definitely, we're, we're, we're like centrally located around the U.S. And, and, and for whatever reason, New York was kind of like a hub for, for Caribbean, Puerto Rican. But like I said before, like now there's like this Puebla York in, in New York, where it's, a, you know, a high population of Mexicans from Puebla coming to New York City. So there's definitely um, there's definitely a lot more, and even uh, Central Salvadorians out here in Brentwood, Long Island, they have like their own little little Salvador around here as well. Uh, you know, here in the D.C. area, I don't know if you know this or not, but one of the largest Peruvian communities is around here. Uh, in addition to one of the largest Bolivian communities, and of course, Salvadoran population is the largest single group. But it is an interesting combination here in the Washington area. But also, it's always striking to me that a place will be a Mexican restaurant and you go in and you look at the, the menu and there are Mexican like Tex-Mex kind of food because that's what most Americans think of when I think they think of Mexican. But there's also a whole section in the back with the real uh, specialties, which are all uh, Salvadoran, so like pupusas and so forth and various desserts that are not Mexican. It's always uh, been striking to me that many Salvadoran restaurants will have Tex-Mex food or a Mexican name on top and also say, and y cocina salvadoreña. Uh, so that you can, uh, you'll know if you're in the know. Yeah. You know, I, I, I hope that, I, I know like we're, the Latino population come from all different uh, countries and we're different levels of acculturation based on the number of generations that we're on in this country. But I hope there is one day like a U.S. Latino identity and that that is what ultimately will unite us and to be like a true community, um, like the African and the black community, you know, like the Asian community. But I hope that that day, that day comes when we're all, even though we come from different parts, we're kind of tied to by one, one uh, identity. That's a really great, great, uh, great uh, uh, point, John. I think one of the things to note is that, you know, when we think about the U.S. Latino population, the U.S. has more Latinos than, uh, than Argentina has people or than uh, Spain does. And we even have more Spanish speakers than a country like El Salvador uh, or even a country like uh, Cuba. So when you think about the population of people in this country who are of this heritage, it's not small. It's quite big. And it, on the world stage, it would only be, I think it'd only be second to Mexico in terms of size and uh, third in terms of Spanish speakers, I think, uh, uh, on the world stage. And that I think is really striking. Will there be a, a US Latino identity? I, I do think it's already emerging because when you look around the world and you say you're from the United States, people will say, oh, uh, you're American. You're not really Mexican in my case, um, but people will be very respectful of it. But I do think that there is an emerging US um, identity that is unique to Latinos. And it's a sort of interesting mix of a North American culture with the cultures of all the places in Latin America and Spain, but also an English speaking and a Spanish speaking and bilingual, being able to navigate different um, different worlds. And I think particularly around something that one colleague many years ago said to me in terms of some marketing research that he'd done around sports, which was that uh, many Hispanics in the United States uh, will have two sets of teams that they root for. They'll root for the teams back home in the home country. So like in Mexico City, uh, the Pumas or something. But then in the U.S., they'll, because of their circle of friends in the U.S., they'll also root for the local baseball team or football teams like the Raiders in, in, in Vegas. I think that's really an interesting story, and that's where I think the Latino identity of the U.S. might be unique. Hey, and, and I, I mean, I guess another way of looking at it, and even just right now because of Thanksgiving, like at my house we have 
uh, a turkey. Like Thanksgiving, we have a turkey, but the size that we'll eat will be like papalo ancaina, which is a Peruvian dish, or like green spaghetti, or something like like the the size around the the, the turkey will be all Peruvian dishes. Uh, but the turkey is still the main dish because of where we are in, in Acción de Gracias or Thanksgiving is there. And that, that dichotomy of two cultures to being unified, I think, is what the Latino, uh, the the U.S. Latino will be. And um, and I think a lot of us always have that same feeling, too, of ni de aquí, ni de allá, not from here, not from there, but making our own kind of space. And now you're seeing it in popular culture, too. Thanks yeah. to yeah, no, I, th I think so. Too. Everything you just said, I think, is really, really great observations about where the uh, culture and identity of the U.S. Latino population stands. And it really is, I think, a, a striking story. I, I find it infinitely fascinating. Honestly, for myself, I think I just found myself in a similar situation yesterday where uh, I went to go get a COVID screening. So a test and in the city MD, the surveys, you know, when it says your race, I think the only thing that I chose what I found closest to myself, which is Mexican American Indian there wasn't anything like that was that was the closest for me and you know just seeing like going back to John's point you know hopefully one day we could have an identity for all of us that we you know we could all resonate with I think and especially going back to that point you know where do we see ourselves when we travel I know personally when I, I hear from people that are Hispanic and they travel to foreign countries you know they tell the foreigners I'm American or identify as this you know and I think that that's very interesting point yeah, that's right. That's exactly what I do. Um, I was in Spain a couple of years ago giving a presentation about Latin, U.S. Latino identity, by the way. And it was really interesting to hear Spanish scholars react to my presentation. So two reactions that I thought were interesting. The first was, and this was a question from the audience, do you consider me Hispanic? Because I meet people from the U.S. and they don't think I'm Hispanic, even though I'm from Spain. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting question. I said, well, it depends. Do you consider yourself Hispanic? If you do, that's what I would say you are. Um, but it is striking that there that some Spaniards are hearing this, uh, this story from Latin Americans or people, I'm sorry, from the U.S. of Latin American heritage that, oh, you know, you're not part of this. Uh, and that's really striking uh, to me. Second thing that I thought was interesting in one of these conversations and presentations in Spain around identity was um, the ways in which uh, people would ask me about whether or not Mexicans feel uncomfortable about uh, being in Spain. This sort of notion that, you know, the Spanish were the conquerors, the conquistadores of Latin America, and that there's a sort of negativity about that. I do think that there is uh, within, at least uh, among Mexicans that I know both in the US and in Mexico, that there is a sense of, wait a minute, you know, they're, they're, they, the Spanish came here, they were the conquerors. It's like, you know, there's a little bit of a tension around that. I think some uh, some Spaniards oftentimes might have, for example, a Twitter handle that might include, you know, um, I'm, uh, I'm from the mother country, or they'll they'll refer to it that way in a joking way, uh, and that sort of is like a, something is like a chip on the shoulder for some Latin Americans. Um, but also, it was striking that as I was talking about this, the Spaniards, all these Spaniards in the in the room, most of them were historians, started talking about the Black Legend, and I don't know if you if you've ever heard of the Black Legend in Spain. But in the in the in the in the competition in Europe to um, to colonize the world, um, there was this battle between Catholics and Protestants. And as Spain was rising with and Portugal too, Catholics were on the rise. And so many of the Protestant countries in in Northern Europe were uh, in in competition with Spain. But there was also a propaganda campaign to to uh, characterize the Spanish, particularly 
as abusers of the native peoples of the Americas, um, as lazy, as not wanting to have businesses, but all, everybody wants to be a warrior, uh, that they take naps all the time. Does some of this sound familiar to you? Because these are the same uh, tropes that you hear about Latin Americans, that they take naps all the time, that they're lazy. Um, and if you ever want to hear an interesting song, uh, you should listen to um, a song called Manana. I think it's by is it Doris Day. But it's an interesting song that has uh, a story about somebody who lives in Latin America and her, her tagline is, oh, I'll do that tomorrow. I'm gonna go and take a nap, probably will do that tomorrow. But this all comes from this black legend that European countries had, had done to characterize the Spanish and to, to essentially battle the Spanish. And in this presentation, uh, as I was talking about the reactions of Latin Americans to Spain, uh, many people were saying, well, that's a black legend again. It's a black legend, it's a black legend. And uh, to me, that was a really striking moment to hear this sort of broader history and how it applies to how people have characterized Mexicans, particularly as being lazy and uh, sleeping and taking naps all the time. That comes partly from this black legend uh, history. I, I had the opportunity to live in Spain for four months as a study abroad and it was definitely interesting. I mean, Latin American, I think is very, and I, I, there was a book I read about it called The Cosmic Race about the fact that we were, um, you know, white, Spanish, the African slave, and then the indigenous population, you know, like melting into, into what is Latin America. And, and the differences between like South America and North America with North America being Protestant and them having like the one drop rule that if you're one drop of your blood was black, then you're black versus in Latin America where they had like a scheme or a map of how you become whiter and the idea of mejorando la raza. So if you were a mulatto or mestizo, you gotta keep on moving up from being indigenous or African, right? You would kind of keep on um, marrying or, or being with people that are lighter than you and you keep on climbing this ladder in, in Latin America. I'm sorry, that, 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 that system, the, the Casta system, yeah, the Casta. is a really, really interesting portrayal of the ways in which the peoples in the Americas mixed and how the Spanish uh, and Portuguese conception of race was something that is similar to that of North America. So there is still the sense of sort of there's a, 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 a but at the same time, it's got these gradations and all these names in this very detailed set of combinations. Well, if a Spaniard who was born in the Americas marries a Spaniard who was born in Spain, then the child is called a hmm. And if uh, an ind indigenous person marries a Spaniard who is from Spain, then the child is called a. And then so if that child then marries uh, somebody who comes from, a, uh, from Africa, then that child of that pairing is called hmm. It's such a, such a sophisticated uh, classification system. But it is also a, a different way of thinking about race in, in the Americas, but also has the same hierarchy of pluses and minuses um, that uh, that are that in some sense reflect the racism uh, of a different of a different type. Yeah, and, and I think it's more tied to in Latin America specifically colorism, right? Like you always, you know, the idea of mejorando la raza is basically being with people that are lighter than you, right? And the, and that idea is stems, I believe, from from Spain and, and how that kind of gets translated. And, and we see it too, like if you watch Telemundo or Univision, it's very rare that you would see an Afro-Latino or an indigenous. And if you do, you see them always in a stereotypical role 
as a servant or as a criminal or something. So even within our own society, we, you know, we still are plagued by the ideas that came during that time. The funniest thing I always hear though, is like in Spain, I, I've heard the, this term that they would say that Africa comienza de los pirames or, or wherever the, the mountain ranges in Spain, because they were also conquered by the Moors for I don't know how many years. And they're even like Spanish words like ojalá is based off of the like Allah, like ojalá is from like, you know, uh, from during that time when, when the Moors were in Spain. So it, it's very interesting. Yeah, ojalá is uh, in Spanish. What does that mean again? That means... Um, I hope or uh, God or something kind of... Uh, in Arabic, it means uh, praise God or to God. Uh, so it's actually like uh, Allah. Uh, yeah. yeah, even uh, the use of el uh, in Spanish as an article comes from Arabic and from the Moorish uh, conquest of southern Spain. And it's interesting because uh, the Moors were, uh, had, had uh, created um, caliphs in southern Spain that lasted uh, centuries. Um, so it's interesting, uh, all of these connections. If you think about it, the Iberian Peninsula, even before Spanish and Portuguese um, explorers went to the Americas, um, are already coming from a, a society that was more mixed than most other European uh, societies because of uh, Spain's proximity to North Africa and the uh, tide of Islam that came and uh, brought um, uh, the Moors to Southern Spain. I just love listening to this. I think all great points and things that I myself didn't know. Is there, looking, I think, to the future, is there any Hispanic trends that you know we should be aware of? Or the Hispanics should have top of mind moving forward. So I think that the uh, that uh, there are a few trends, and I mentioned a couple of them already. But the one about the declining foreign-born share, I think, is an important one. The second one is that U.S. population growth will continue to be driven by Latino population growth, but Latino population growth is slowing and slowing uh, 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 quickly enough that Latinos are no longer the fastest-growing group in the country. It's now Asian Americans. So looking forward. Latinos will probably be by 2065, maybe a quarter of the US population. But we used to project back in the early 2000s that by 2050, they would be about 33% of the US population. So if you think about it, slower population growth is translated into a longer run change in the country where Latino share rises to at least 25%, but by 2065. Um, I think another important trend to keep in mind is the role of youth. Latino population is young and youth are going to drive, Latino youth are going to drive college enrollment. They're going to be driving population growth. They're going to be driving also uh, a new entrance into the labor force. So they're going to make it the large share of it. And they'll be important for the nation's economic prosperity looking forward because they'll be a larger share of the workforce than they are today. So those are just some of the trends that I would say to keep an eye on. Uh, oh, one final one uh, about elections. Uh, Latinos uh, more than likely had a record turnout and a, and a striking record turnout this, this election. Uh, part of that was because of demographics, but everybody, all groups, came out in record numbers this year. So I think you will see some real striking results for Latinos. But the Latino electorate is going to only continue to grow. By 2024, there'll be probably another 4 million Latinos eligible to vote so that the number will reach 36 million by then, making up probably around 15% of all U.S. voters. So that is striking. We're at about 13% today. We'll see where things go, but that that's, that's going to be another important trend to keep in mind is that the Latino electorate will have more weight in the future than it does today. Awesome. I have one final question, actually, Mark. Uh, what's, what's in your glass? 
No, I'm, I myself am a, a whiskey guy. I was just looking at it. Um, I am being, um, I am, uh, John, do I tell him about this? I don't know if I should tell him about this. Should I, 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 I should lie, maybe. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you the truth, but then you can decide which one you want, and then I will lie. So here's the truth. Um, I'm having a, uh, an Aperol Negroni. I don't know if you've ever tried that. So rather than using Campari, use Aperol as the bitter. And it's not quite as bitter, and it's usually with a little bit less gin, uh, so it's not quite as heavy on the alcohol. That's what I'm having right now. Now, if I were to lie, Jorge, I would tell you that instead I am having, and I'm just going to start. I'm actually having the Lopez. It's a cocktail that was created for me here in Washington about 10 years ago by a bartender that I know, but it's got some mezcal in it, some chocolate bitters, some sweet vermouth. It's actually my signature cocktail and actually one of three cocktails in the in Washington that are named after me. So Jorge, next time you're here in uh, DC, John, next time you're here in DC, we'll go to the bar where we can get all three of them, the Lopez, the Oaxacan Hugo, and the Salinas Swizzle. So let me know when you're in DC and we'll go do that. I look forward to that. You, def you definitely have to send the recipe over so you know I can make it myself during this quarantine season. I will send you the recipe for the Lopez if you want to see it. Yes, I can. <laughs> definitely. Uh, John, do you have any questions? No, uh, no, just to say thank you again, uh, Mark, for, 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 for doing this and, and for doing it twice in one day. Uh, thank you for coming to talk to us at AB and Speed Up for Anheuser-Busch and now for Hispanic Star too. But also, Jorge, thank you for the chance to be on, on your podcast. It's a real honor, and I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much, Mark. I look forward to you know speaking again soon. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of the Sazon Podcast.